Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a minute. It's been a minute, but I have sports fever again. I've been watching the World Championship Athletics this past week, in the past 10 days, and I've been loving it. And and soon's ends, the Commonwealth Games are here. Oh, I love it. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week, week in the circumstances. I mean, I had this weekend on top of a good week, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, man, I've just, I just, just been happy with just uh, just just living, man. Just like living in the moment. I, I've uh, just finished um, my first series in a minute, like TV series. So it's just, I've, I've kind of kind of just gone off, just trying to watch tv for some reason uh, i've just uh, been on other things um but i finished the uh, the lazarus project uh, last night and um i'm not sure if it's because every time i watched it um i was li- you know had a little uh, you know what i mean a little, a little herb um i'm not sure if it's because of that um but it might be one of the greatest tv shows i've ever seen um i think you obviously the whole concept is like you know spending some sort of belief right of you know having just the concept of a certain set of people having the ability to um to to time jump uh in for in a certain within a year right it's it's not like you know pick a time it's not like that it's not like doctor who where you could pick any time any place da, da, da. it's not like that but you 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 are on july 1st wherever you are at that moment you are at a checkpoint okay so uh and yeah it basically goes from there and you have a year to go by and basically ledger's project is kind of like this you know secret agency that have the ability to uh, you know when it's really when it's really down the shitter when you know the world's gonna end da, 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 they basically you know set a timer and boom they go back to july 1st um and just go um, and they have all the memories of those of those time jumps but the but regular people don't so it's like a whole nother it's like just another go basically but they have the knowledge and it and it and it kind of it kind of uh weaves itself into this just uh maze of people that are that have different morals and different ways of going about things and it's just so fascinating it is just so fascinating as a concept and um i just really fucking enjoyed my time watching it the music is amazing um the action's decent right it's this good action right so it's got some good action bits in there um Great characters, great actors, um, really good dialogue, really good writing, and um, yeah, man, I just really, I really like the stakes of it. Like, there's kind of like no stakes, but there's also stakes. You know, there's always there's always a existential stake, right, of the world ending, but there's also so to spoil a little bit of it. There's se- there's several times in the in the show where they're just um, where they're just constantly rewinding because they can't get through a particular problem um and in those pro in those issues 
someone someone has to be suffering, right? Um, you know, they they have this um they have several existential conversations about you know changing time and you know in some ways it's playing God right and uh, you know you're killing you're killing babies in some ways right because uh, if you if you time jump those babies are not born or those babies are born if they obviously have been conceived um, they're going to be born but they might come out completely different um, they might they just be completely different people right so just the ethical conversations around it is so rich i just i just can't i haven't had a show like that in a while where i'm just constantly thinking about it i was thinking about it all last night i couldn't sleep over it. i was just like damn i would i now i was asking myself do i would i want this or not want this you know what i mean because in some ways it's fascinating it'll be a fascinating not a power but a fascinating privilege to have of um of, of having all of your past memories and all of the dead timelines that you know technically don't exist anymore but they exist in your head and if you're doing something like the main character does in that show he does some extreme shit i won't tell you what they are they're very extreme shit he's got to deal with all that trauma now and um he did it for a certain reason and uh you know and that that reason might and it might not be as utopian it's never as utopian as you think it will be and that's just um the there's a lot of karma in it as well and i really like that as well so um, big ups to Ladrick's project. Really highly recommend it. Um, just uh, yeah, one of the best shows I've ever seen. I was, I, this is this is it though. This is it. Zooming out, this is how it is going to be for me now. Where I watch a show, and you know I'm gonna I'm, I'll probably enjoy it. Right, I'm not gonna watch stuff that I feel like I'm not gonna enjoy. I used to do that. I used to watch shows at least till like the end of the season, and you know give it a fair shake because I feel like you know that's deserving. Um, but honestly, I don't even try anymore. I just, I'm just like, if I don't, if I can't see myself liking it, I probably won't give it a watch. Um, if I'm in the company of someone else, then sure, I'll give it a spin. Um, because it's not just my time. Um, but if it is literally just my time, I'm going to pick something that I know I'll enjoy over anything else. So, um, just prioritizing the time on that front, you know what I mean? Um, but anyway. Past that solid weekend. Obviously, I said watching the athletics. Really enjoyed that. Um, Commonwealth's coming. Um, I think they start on the day of this episode dropping. Um, so that's cool. We've got European athletics championships as well. Uh, coming in a few. I think like next month or something. So that's very soon. So yeah, man. Just um, packed with sport. Obviously, um, Lionesses um, dropped dropped a four piece on Sweden the other night. Um, so that was cool. Uh, I watched the highlights of that. Saw that little dink, you know, the fucking nut nutmeg them. Well, okay. how do you, that's a great question. What's a nut? Is it is it a nutmeg to a woman? That's a, has anyone thought about this? because <laughs> like you know when when you when you shout nuts, you know I mean it's it's because it's, it's a dude, right? That's part of the game, right? Nuts, because but like if, if it's a female, is it like? Is it still a nutmeg? I feel like I've opened Pandora's box here, so I'm just going to leave that there and uh, move on to the show. <laughs> oh gosh! Okay, we have a sport, politics, uh, society, music uh, uh, topics for you to uh, for this episode. Um, for my before we begin, I've I've never that's never going to leave my head. By the way, oh my gosh, and it's never going to leave your head. So um, if you have an answer, let me know. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway. 
Well, that's where we begin. Email, Twitter, <laughs> Discord, all that, all that, all that. In the full show notes, go pick the articles for yourself, give them a read for yourself, and uh, support the writers that make the show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop, and let's get into the show. The thing is, I want to suggest things, but I don't want to suggest things. I don't want to be insensitive. So anyway, uh, in a week where Ukraine and Russia agree on a grain deal uh, to avert a global food crisis, only for Russia to bomb uh, the, I think it was Odessa um, port, literally hours after the deal was made. So uh, yeah, Uh, so that's continuing on. Uh, The WHO, World Health Organization, declared monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, Marvel announced a new slate of works, including two Avengers films in 2025. And um, I'll just say this, um, the quicker um, VFX artists in Hollywood um, unionize, the better. Um, because um, I haven't been watching any of the Marvel films. I, I've, I've seen a couple. I've, I saw The Eternals. I saw Shang-Chi. Um, and I think that's it. I haven't seen any of the TV shows. Um, because simply put, I don't think they're putting in the effort I would like, uh, they they have been doing so previously. Um, I'm seeing clips here and there that just look a bit iffy. I'm just like, yeah, you know, that, you know, obviously, you know, all this superhero shit relies heavily on VFX and there are VFX eyes already working, you know, basically 24 seven, right? Um, just on the grind. Uh, I forgot the... Uh, I forgot the uh, gamer um, develop- game developer term crunch. Yeah, the crunch. There you go. They're under. They're basically under the crunch. And um, two Avengers films. Um, one of them being Secret Wars, uh, which I actually watched a video of. Uh, shout out to Rob uh, from Comics Explained. Um, really good. Um, just dude on YouTube that just covers the whole like comic spectrum. I don't know how he does it. Uh, with so much knowledge on that front and so much reading to do on that front. Um, and uh, yeah, you explained Secret Wars, this is the original story, the '85 version. And if that is it, if that is what Secret Wars is, um, there there is no way they're going to drop that in 2025, and it's going to be of decent quality. There's there's just no way. Um, anyway, but yeah, uh, David Trimble, uh, Northern Ireland's first first minister, uh, dies aged 87. Um, he was obviously uh, one of the architects uh, for the Good Friday Agreement, um, which um, is pretty poetic that he dies um at a time where uh the british government is kind of just you know sending uh in northern ireland uh relations uh back 30 40 years so uh there we go and um lastly the uk will host 2023 eurovision um and um cricket says nobody else gives a shit um, so let's talk about the 2012 Olympics. Let's do a little bit of nostalgia because um, on this day, as I record, uh, which is Wednesday 27th, obviously dropping on Thursday the 28th of July, um, is the 10-year anniversary of the 2012 London Summer Olympics. Um, I have distant but very great memories of um, the 2012 Olympics. Um, I remember vaguely 2008, but 2012 was like the first Olympics where I felt like I was in it, and I was constantly on the couch watching daily, just whatever was there. Um, I've said this before, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a complete omnivore when it comes to Olympics. Uh, I watch anything and everything apart from maybe equestrian, 
fucker question. Um, but apart from that, you know, I kind of watch everything. Um, I give everything a spin at least once. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, uh, obviously the most, uh, probably the most memorable moment of the Olympics was the Olympic ceremony, uh, opening ceremony. Um, obviously Super Saturday, um, and obviously, you know, a few other performances here and there. The cycling especially is a very big, uh, big moment. Um, but yeah, you know, the, I think the opening ceremony has just the most iconography, let's just say that. And it's very, um, visually memorable. Um, but yeah, I found this article from a couple of weeks ago, actually, 16th of July. Um, I was going to do it for the last episode, but I thought, well, since the anniversary is coming around now, let's do it now. Um, so I saved it. This is by Steve Rose um, via The Guardian. It's called A Jerusalem for Everyone. Was the 2012 Olympics the last gasp of liberal Britain? Um, so, yeah, a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, ideology and uh, philosophy here, I guess, in some ways. But um, it's, it's interesting to think about, I think, uh, as a write-up. So let's get, let's get into it. Dreams figured prominently in the London 2012 Olympic Opening Ceremony. The first speaker of the night was Kenneth Branagh, channeling both Isambard Kingdom Brunel and Shakespeare's Caliban. Quote, the clouds methought would open... And snow and show riches, uh, ready to drop upon me. Then when I waked, I cried to dream again. Unquote. An entire section was devoted to children's bedtime nightmares. Rowan Atkinson lapsed into a dream featuring his, uh, during his cameo in Chariots of Fire, and and hallucinatory spectacles such as the Queen jumping out of a helicopter with James Bond made 900 million viewers around the world wonder if they were the ones dreaming. Ten years on, the whole ceremony feels more dreamlike than ever. This was Britain as a rich, diverse, multicultural, imaginative, inventive nation comfortable with its identity and capable of reconciling its contradictions. We were traditional yet modern. We were powerful yet caring. We were orderly yet anarchic. Anarchic? I think that's how you say it. Um, We had a vast back catalogue of world-changing culture from which to draw. We knew how to put on a good show and we had a sense of humour. Jonathan Coe summed up the feelings of many in his 2018 novel Middle England, which devotes a whole chapter to various characters watching the opening ceremony, including Duck, the sceptical journalist who writes for uh, The Guardian. Quote, what he felt while watching it were the stirrings of an emotion he hadn't experienced for years, had never really experienced at all, perhaps, dot dot dot, yes. Why not come straight out and admit it? At this moment he felt proud, proud to be British, proud to be part of a nation which had not only achieved such great things, but can now celebrate them with such confidence and irony and lack of self-importance, unquote. We could even laugh about our notoriously crap weather. Fake clouds were paraded around the stadium that night, but real clouds were looming for Britain. Exits and uh, its ongoing repercussions, of course, not to mention the Windrush scandal, the COVID pandemic, the cost of living crisis, deportations to Rwanda, I barely need to go on. Such a moment of national pride, confidence and unity now seems almost unimaginable. As a result, the 2012 opening ceremony, official titled Isles of Wonder, has become something of a cultural touchstone. For many, it has effectively become shorthand for Britain before it all turned to shit. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that bit. I mean, this is it's obviously, you know, coming from... Uh, I feel like context needs to be added here. Um, I'll add it. I'll add my personal feelings towards this. But, um, you know, obviously this comes. this will come across as a very liberal... Um, way of thinking about things um, which is probably not the most realistic but um, I feel like there's a lot of people that probably agree with this kind of thing for best or for 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 reasons that are probably differing from from others Um, but anyway 
you, you'll pro- we'll probably get that throughout the, throughout the thing. So let's continue. Uh, like Caliban, many of us cry to dream again. Quote, makes me almost cry to think about, uh, to think it was only six years ago, tweeted Yvette Cooper, MP Yvette Cooper, in 2018, for example, in response to an hashtag on this day tweet from Team GB that read, take us back to 2012. Many others have echoed the sentiment privately, publicly, and across the political spectrum. Here we go. Even this trust invoked it in 2019, albeit to different ends. Quote, we need to revive the Olympic 2012 spirit, a modern, patriotic, enterprising vision of Britain, and we need to use the exit to achieve that, unquote. That's hilarious. This is why. This is, in a nutshell, for me personally, I, I, I said I'd do it later, but I'm going to do it now. I'm just going to say it just in, in a nutshell for me. In a nutshell of why... I struggle with the British identity here for me personally. The, the, the this that that particular word, Britishness, British Britishness, feeling patriotic about Britain, right? The reason why I struggle is because of shit like this. You know, just we we we're, we're bad faith actors take it and use it for just as bad things. And also, you know, I've said this throughout the throughout the lifetime of this podcast, um, the lack of people learning about the horrors of what we've done as a country, as a historically significant country. Um, I'm not. I wasn't. Exp- I'm not expecting um, anybody, any country that try and fulfil a patriot a patriotic act to um, reference. You know. Uh, fucking um, I don't know. <laughs> shit, shit, we did in Africa, for example, right? African colonialism, right? Just say that, right? I wasn't expecting that to appear in 2012, right? At, at the opening ceremony, I don't expect that in any fashion, right? But the fact that we still, even worse so to this day, um, shun away from it jars me. Because this will all be well and good if we acknowledge the bad shit as well as the good shit. But the fact we love to sip this sip this Kool-Aid of, oh, look at how Britain was and how it should be, whatever. Da, 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 the, the, British, the British tradition, whatever you want to call that. However you want to describe that. That's, that's what makes my arse itch every time, people, every time something like this comes up, right? And you know, I I remember I remember the opening ceremony. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. It's great. It's a great piece of art. Shout out to Danny Boyle, right? To for just masterminding it. It's great. But fuck, just people using it to the to the to the worst ends makes me makes me shun away from all of it, and makes me just not even try to be quote unquote British in however people think about it. I'm just being me at that point. Anyway, and I feel like I'm not alone in that, um, especially for the non-white um, uh, contingent of this country. Uh, anyway, continue on. But with a decade's hindsight, we are left wondering what kind of dream the London 2012 Open Ceremony was. Was it a dream in the Martin Luther King sense, an aspiration for what we wanted Britain to be? Or was it more of a dream in the Sex Pistols England dream- England's dreaming sense, an illusion of something that never really existed? That's a great point. In his statement in the program for the event, director Danny Boyle certainly seemed to be going for the Luther King option. Quote, we hope, too, that through all the noise and excitement that you will uh, that you will glimpse a single golden thread of purpose, the idea of Jerusalem, of a better world, the world of real freedom and true equality. 
uh, a belief that we can build Jerusalem and that will be for everyone. Unquote. Excuse me. The final sentiment was key to opening the ceremony, uh, key to the opening ceremony success. An epic opening ceremonies are a weird genre of entertainment from the outset, traditionally fusing elements of circus, spectacular, musical theatre, state parade, and ceremonial protocol. The uh, Beijing 2008 ceremony, costing a reported $100 million, had all but perfected this format. But Boyle took a different approach, which was of a piece with the image of Britain he sought to represent. Yes, there were technical feats and spectacular sequences and marquee names, but Boyle's ceremony was really focused on and performed by ordinary people. Quote, the volunteers are the best of us, said Boyle at the time. This show belongs to them. This country belongs to them. Danny's plan, another quote, Danny's plan was to make it something made by the people, said Mark Tildesley, the production designer for Isles of Wonder and a regular Boyle collaborator. And that's all of the people, uh, doctors, nurses, surgeons, kids from the council states, just the whole gamut, that sort of melting pot of London. It was homemade, handmade. It wasn't like China's show of force and scale. It was heartfelt and heart meant. People own that show. I'm feeling emotional thinking about it, actually. Unquote. And another quote. Everybody could find themselves in it, said Catherine Ugwu, uh, executive uh, producer for all four uh, London 2012 opening and closing ceremonies. Whether we focused on Windrush, the suffragettes, the pearly kings and queens, the Chelsea pensioners, the C&D protesters, wherever you were in there, everybody felt like they had a part to play and that they were included. That's something that's rare in this country and I think that's what people cherish, unquote. The London Olympic Organising Committee's decision to invite Boyle was unanimous, says Ugu, another quote. Everybody thought he was perfect for the role. The question was whether Danny thought it was something he wanted to do, unquote. Shortly after, in an empty production office in Soho, Boyle immediately began canvassing ideas for his core team, many of whom had been regular collaborators on his film and theatre projects. Tildesley, writer Frank Cottrell Boyce, producer T Tracy Seawood, Underworld's Rick Smith as music director, costume designer Sutirat, and Lalarb, 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 L-A-R-L-A-R-B, Lalarb, that's an interesting name, quote, we could do different, we would do different things, Tildy explains. Like, the subject would be favourite songs, so each person would have five songs that they could play everyone and explain why they thought they were important. After their meetings, Cultural Boyce would take away their babble, Tilsey continues, and by the time he got back to Liverpool, he'd send us an email in some uh, sort of order that made sense and had structural relevance to poetry, theatre, world history, whatever. The Queen's memorable entrance came about during the discussion on what people around the world associate with Britain, uh, says Tilsey. It's the Queen and James Bond, so we thought, right, that's it, let's get the two of them together. They never imagined Her Majesty would actually play herself, uh, though rumour has it she was a huge Bond fan, she would really. She really wanted to get involved. When we got there to Puckham Palace to direct her, she'd come from the dentist in a taxi and just did her own hair. Then she said to Danny, "Do you think I should say something? What about if I said good evening, Mr. Bond?" I was like, "I cannot the believe the Queen is saying this." Unquote. Outsiders were also struck by Boyle's approach. Quote, One thing had always stayed with me. One thing that has always stayed with me was uh, Danny's sense of teamwork and collaboration. Says the dancer Akram Khan who choreographed and performed a memorable sequence on the theme of mortality, backed by Emily Sandy's rendition of Abide With Me. Khan recalls his first meeting with Boyle about the t and about 20 others. If you didn't know what Danny Boyle looked like, you wouldn't know who the hell he was, uh, who the hell he was leading the meeting. He didn't lead by dominance or by being extrovert. He led by listening. We all felt heard, and I think his work turned out the way it did because Danny was such a great listener. 
Amid the near unanimous praise heaped on the ceremony, there were a few dissenting voices. Some wanted something more traditionally jingoistic. Others objected to the, quote, jarring and fantastical cult worship, unquote, of the National Health Service, uh, as Douglas Murray put it in The Spectator. Eyebrows were also raised at the vaguely political elements such as the suffragist campaigners, the Jarrow marches, and a CND symbol being represented. Conservative MP Aidan Burley called it the most lefty opening ceremony I've ever seen. Toby Young described it as a £27 million party political broadcast for the Labour Party. The spectators Harry Cole remarks, not even communist China were so brazen as to extol their nationalised stranglehold on their, whole, on their country so blatantly. What do you want? Like, what did they want? Do they want National Front representation as well? Like, what else? I don't know. Uh, many on the right wondered how David Cameron's coalition government would have uh, let, could, could have let Boyle get away with it. Okay, quote, If you cho- uh, choose Danny Boyle, you're going to get something punk and exotic, said Tilsley. But it really wasn't driven to be political. Never. I know some people who uh, I know some people will cough and swear and say it was very left-wing, but Mr. Bean is not left-wing. The green and pleasant land is not left-wing. Cricket is not left-wing. Soldiers whistling tunes is not left-wing. Emily Sanday singing is not left-wing. Uh, few would label the Queen or James Bond as particularly left-wing either. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Uh, there was arguably politi- politi- politicization. Fuck it, I'm just going to say it like that. If I said it wrong, I said it wrong. The other way too. Uh, Boyle later re- revealed how the incoming culture secretary, Gener- Jeremy Hunt, uh, pu- pushed to reduce or cut the NHS sequence. Uh, Boyle refused and threatened to remove all the volunteers from the ceremony. The government side, who were, after all, funding the show, brought their own wishes to things to include, such as references to the Magna Carta, uh, Britain's role in the World Wars, and more Shakespeare. Boris Johnson, then uh, London mayor, apparently got it, but many other politicians uh, politicians didn't. Karam recalls watching a rehearsal of his dance sequence in the stadium alongside some visiting politicians, whom he preferred not to name. The dance include autobiographical elements drawn from Khan's experience growing up in London as a child of Bangladeshi immigrants, and featured a child dancer. Uh, they didn't know I was there, says Khan, and this official said, just out of curiosity, why is there an Indian-looking boy? The room went silent. It was quite a shock, and Danny said, because this represents London, this represents England, this is us. From today's perspective, perhaps it is more of a case of this was us. Uh, it should be a part of natural curriculum, says Seawood, to say this was the moment, this and this is what the UK represented at the time, because it feels like in the intervening 10 years, most of that has been deconstructed. The welfare state is being deconstructed. The NHS is in a crisis. Educational authorities are in crisis. The union itself is in crisis. So there was this moment that we were holding in our hand like a treasure. And that has been, uh, over the 10 years, picked apart. And when I look back at it, it makes me feel really melancholic, actually. Unquote. I think that's a really good quote, actually. I think that's a really good um, uh, summa- su- summarising of... Um, you know, the difference between then and now, and it is interesting, I think, as a relic, um, to, you know, to maybe talk about it in, in schools or whatever, I think that's interesting, it'll be an interesting conversation, uh, admittedly, Britain circa 2012, uh, was still a long way from anyone's dream of Jerusalem, this conservative-led coalition government had already begun making savage cuts to public services on this austerity program, in August 2011, there had been riots in London and other British cities, in May 2012, then Home Secretary Theresa May introduced the term hostile environment to describe her government's increasingly hardline immigration policies. As The Guardian Owen Jones put it earlier this year, the obsession with the 2012 Olympic, so- uh, Olympic Soaring Ceremony 
is revealing because this faction think Britain was a utopian wonderland at the time. It wasn't. It was four years after an epic financial crash and the Tories were hacking the British welfare state into tiny little pieces, unquote. Maybe England was dreaming after all then. Uh, pining for an imaginary time when Britain was great can be a counterproductive and possibly hypocritical road to go down. After all, this is a stick progressive minded Britain's uh, a stick progressive minded Britain's use uh, usually used to beat their uh, more conservative opponents. Like all open ceremonies, Sunday 2012 was never designed to be a documentary. Quote, you can't do the Olympic opening and tell the entire truth. You can't, just can't. Because Britain dominated and raped and, uh, <laughs> and has a bad history of divide and rule. Of all the empi- of the empire, basically. There's a lot of anger towards that because it runs through generation after generation. Institutional racism is still prevalent within police force, within the government. Another perfect um, paragraph right there. Um, it kind of sums up what I was saying. That does not make Boyle wrong for wanting to tell a positive story, says Khan. He wanted to tell a story of beautiful things and celebrate Britain in the way Britain should be celebrated as a place of confidence and warmth and kindness and everything that I felt when I was growing up, but the world has changed. It wasn't just about politics, says Catherine Ugwu. Quote, I think uh, also people feel nostalgic about it because it's something that everybody thought that made Britain look great. We were a sceptical kind of nation. We are, we are a sceptical kind of nation because we think that we're not confident enough uh, to uh, to believe that we have the skills and ability to deliver these things. But then we, when we do, when we point out to uh, every, everybody all the amazing things we do, I think people felt proud. Yes, it, it handpicked the things that we want to refer to, but then isn't that what celebrations are about? And isn't that what sometimes we need to do, which is to remind ourselves that, uh, of what there is to love about who we are. Identity is always about storytelling, and as much as it was a cultural event, Isles of Wonder was one of the few attempts to tell a fresh, modern, inclusive story about what Britain was, is, and could be. We might not have lived up to it in the short term, but the fact that the vast majority of us responded so positively to it is as important now as it was then. Given all that's happened since, Britain needs stories like this more than ever. But then that's the issue, isn't it? When you... um when you even attempt to do it, um, you know, politicians get get bitchy, um, you know, from uh, and you know they go like, oh, why, 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 why is it too good in this light? Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's just and it just gets very, it's, it's just toxic, man. It's just toxic. I, I can understand why people don't. Um, I can see, uh, I can I can respect Isles of Wonder. I can expect the, I can respect the act that was done and i respect the sentiment um but you know it's because it just people ruin it people people just ruin it you're ruining it with just attitudes that just don't make sense in the 21st century why is there a little indian boy why the fuck do you care bro why do you care it's 100 dancers or whatever however many there were and that's the one and, and you get a gripe you know what I mean? The shit like that, bro. That's, that's that's the shit. That's the shit that pisses me off. And the shit that just makes me feel like I'm in limbo sometimes I, in terms of identity of just where I'm at sometimes. Uh, you know, or like watching an England game, for example. There's actually a great... Um, there was a great quote by Daniel Kaluuya a couple of weeks ago. Um, he was on The, the Shop, uh, which is kind of like a, where celebrities, basically, uh, from all walks of life, uh, go to a barber shop. Um, and it's hosted by LeBron James and his uh, business partner Maverick Carter. 
And um, here, Daniel Kaluuya and Marcus Rashford were there. And Marcus Rashford was in the middle of talking about, you know, being an England player, um, but facing racism, right? And he kind of, you know, he kind of did the naive kid thing, uh, naive guy thing of of being like a, you know, uh, oh, but uh, I don't, I, I don't even want to put words in his mouth. But Daniel Kaluuya really just stopped him and really put it in ways that made sense to me, and I I appreciate. Um, so go look at that, that clip if you want. Um, it's a really good clip and really worth a watch. Um, but yeah, man, you know, shout out to it's been ten years, um, and you know I can fully appreciate, um, especially the sporting achievements that were done uh, during those two weeks. Um, like I said, it was one of my favorite. Um, it's probably one of my favorite moments in life. Honestly, There's just 2012 as a year. I really enjoyed that year. Um, I don't, I don't usually, you know, think of years like that, um, but. There was just so much memorable shit, and um, 2012 was definitely part of that. And now we come back to Earth. Let's talk about some politics. Um, so as we as I talk. Um, had uh, two leadership debates um, between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, and um, I hope nobody watched it because there's no point. Um, but uh, I guess I wanted to still talk about something different um, to diversify the pot because there are other things happening. Um, so yes, last week uh, there was a, a report called the Ford. I don't know if it's the Ford E or Ford report. I don't know if these um, you know represented there, um, but it's spelled with the knee Ford E. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, uh, it, it basically was a report um, on the Corbyn years, uh, mainly, and uh, just uh, how warped it was um, from a media perspective, especially, and also from a pipe, in, inside pipe perspective as well. So, uh, this is an article by Navarra Media uh, by Justin Schlossberg. Um, who is a uh, media academic and author uh, based at Birkbeck College uh, in London. And it's called The Forgery Report Lays Bare the Lie at the Heart of the Media Wars, uh, uh, Media's War on Corbyn. Um, so let's jump right in. For the nuanced language of the long-awaited Forgery Report, there is one key finding that lays bare a carefully constructed lie. It was a lie that implicated not just the right of the Labour Party, but a great swathe or swath um, of Britain's political and media class. And it was a lie that underpinned much of the dominant narrative leading up to, during and since Labour's disastrous performance in the 2019 general election. This lie was not that Labour under Jeremy Corbyn had a real and serious problem with anti-Semitism. The Forty Report is right to call out those on the left who sought to deny or downplay the existence of anti-Jewish prejudice within the party. Of course, it is true that the vast majority of Labour's half a million members under Corbyn were not implicated in anti-Semitism complaints. And it's true, as the Forty Report acknowledges, that there was some doubled counting of complaints and several based on people who turned out not to be Labour members. But suggestions that allegations of anti-Semitism were nothing more than a smokescreen, smear job or conspiracy were always wrong, both morally and factually. The Forty Report is equally clear that the anti-Semitism issue was indeed weaponized by Corbyn's ideological opponents. The problem for them, however, 
was all was that the existence of anti-Semitism within the party, even in some of the shocking and pernicious forms exposed in a league report, proved on its own insufficient uh, to topple. It should be. I feel like it should be a comma or something there. Proved on its own insufficient to top no, no, to topple uh, the leadership. I am wrong uh, on the grammar front. Uh, this was especially clear following the root and branch reforms introduced by Corbyn's ally Jenny Formby uh, after she took over as Labour's general secretary in April 2018. In order to fatally undermine the Corbyn project, it had been it had to be shown that Corbyn himself, or at least his office, was somehow complicit in the problem. That the leadership was the problem. Looking back, it's easy to spot the broad evolution of this narrative. After Labour's unexpected gains in the 2017 election, media hostility towards the leadership ramped up significantly. First, the focus was on easily debunked allegations that Corbyn was either an ally or paid informant of the former Soviet Union. That didn't convince Guardian or make a dent in Corbyn's newfound popularity. Uh, by early 2018, Labour was still basking in the afterglow of the election the previous year and riding high in the polls. Even in the spring and early summer of 2019, after the anti-Semitism crisis embroiling the leadership had saturated headlines for the best part of a year, Corbyn's Labour was consistently polling far higher than it had in the lead-up to the 2017 election and comfortably ahead of the Tories. This is when allegations that Corbyn's office had been unduly interfering in complaints, investigations, and actively blocking efforts to tackle anti-Semitism began to take hold. It was a story that finally framed Corbyn as the ultimate source of the problem, not for anything he had done in the past, before he was doing as leader of the party. To understand how this story gripped the media agenda, it helps to consider one of the most fundamental of news values. Allegations on their own, especially in the thick of political controversies, don't usually make for lead headlines. What was needed was hard evidence, the kind that could buttress, uh, that's a weird word, buttress, um, a broadsheet exclusive, uh, reverberate across the Sunday politics shows and shape headlines for the week ahead. And in March 2019, Corbyn's opponents got what they were seemingly looking for, a cache of emails leaked by former Labour staff which uh, supposedly proved the Corbyn leadership was blocking action on anti-Semitism. The story took off on March 2nd, uh, with the Observer reporting that, quote, members of Labour's high command opposed recommendations to suspend several party activists accused of anti-Semitism, unquote. It was followed, by, uh, shortly, uh, followed shortly after by a typical hit piece on The Sun, Headline, Jeremy Corbyn's cronies medal in Labour anti-Semitism cases uh, to stop their friends getting kicked out of the party. Similar articles surfaced in the Times and Sunday Times, all leading up, leading up to the BBC's controversial Panorama edition in July 2019, uh, 2019 is Labour anti-Semitic. In one particularly noteworthy sequence highlighted in the 40 report, uh, Labour's former head of disputes told the BBC's John Ware, an email he had uh, he received from Corbyn's then head of strategy was in effect a request quote to be involved directly in the disciplinary process unquote but there was a problem the full content content of such email chains not only didn't prove the allegations of unsolicited meddling but if anything the very opposite this was the lie at the heart of panorama and much of the preceding and subsequent coverage as the 40 report makes abundantly and repeatedly clear uh, excuse me uh, rub my chin against the, against the mic there it was uh, the staff in Labour's compliance unit including some of the former senior officials framed as whistleblowers by Panorama who not only requested but insisted on guiding, uh, guidance from the leader's office during this period 
Indeed, the Forley report found that the, quote, advice from two Loto leader of the opposition staff members, uh, which was subsequently criticised, was, however, requested insistently by the GLU, Governance and Legal Unit, and in our view, provided in good faith, unquote. For their part, former officials told the Forley inquiry that obstruction and pressure from leader's office was applied offline, and that their insistence on getting input via emails was an attempt to bring this to light. But either they didn't tell this panorama's producers, or the producers chose to ignore it. It gets worse. Emails which surf- surfaced long before the leaked Labour report showed the leader's uh, office at times pleading with seemingly unmoved uh, senior officials to both expedite and escalate disciplinary action on some of the most serious and high-profile anti-Semitism cases. In April 2019, three months before Panorama aired, BuzzFeed published emails showing Corbyn aide, uh, then Corbyn aide, uh, Laura Murray, repeatedly emailing party officials asking why action was not being taken to stop Kane Livingston from returning to, to the party following a two-year suspension for anti-Semitism. And my council candidate Adam Bull had not been suspended for a Facebook post suggesting that the Holocaust was a hoax. These emails were ignored by the UK's quality press and broadcasters, including Panorama, presumably because they didn't quite fit the opposing and preferred narrative of obstruction and unsolicited interference by the leadership. That such allegations were so enthusiastically laundered across the mainstream media, even in the face of glaring counter-evidence, remains one of the most brazen examples of a disinformation paradigm. Although at times the Forty report uh, appears to give equal weight to the email evidence and the hearsay cited by former officials, i.e. offline pressure, it, has, it is fairly, fairly damning and unfin- uh, unflinching in its critique of the media. It highlights examples in The Sun, Sky News, BBC and even the Jewish Chronicle before concluding that it was entirely misleading for such media reports to frame emails as evidence of undue interference in the complaints process by the party leadership. It is difficult to overstate the significance of those sto- of these stories. The allegations of undue and unsolicited interference provided the trigger for the investigation by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which in turn paved the way for Corbyn's ultimate suspension from the Parliamentary Labour Party, having served as Labour MP for Islington North since 1983. After four years of unrelenting hostility towards his leadership from both the media and Labour's political establishment, including two failed coups, this was the story that preceded a dramatic shift in the polls, and it was one that proved insurmountable, paving the way for a record-breaking majority secured by the Tories in uh, December 2019 election. The rest, as they say, is history. And um, I, I've, I've always said this to myself: um, like, I just the the flashpoint that that election was was just it just it just increasingly day every day that passes that election becomes just so much more magnified for me and such a flashpoint in british history of and where we're going i regardless of um you know whether you uh believe or you know just but yeah regardless of what you believe right um i feel like the media didn't do their job Right, um, in being, um, you know, journalists for for one thing, um, you know, I feel, and I said this to my sister while we were watching the Lazarus Project. Funny enough, because uh, there was a bit where uh, someone got framed, basically, um, and um, I was, I, I said to my sister, I was like, "Isn't that the first rule of anything investigative? 
you know, regardless of whether it's journalism or policing or whatever. The first rule of, you know, being an investiga- investigator in any fashion is that um, consider all options. You know what I mean? Open mind and all that, right? And and don't take the easy route, you know? Uh, you know, just, just have... have um, have alternative uh, routes to go down and have se- have more than one lead all that kind of stuff right you want to have assurances and that's has and it has to be done with discipline with a discipline and b with intent you have to intend to find all that because a lot of these people and you know i'm sure i've done it too um be being lazy and taking whatever comes first and just going down that route and uh you know and and some people do it even worse so where they take one thing and because it applies to their agenda completely just a tunnel vision and uh you know goes uh yeah it goes tunnel vision on it and doesn't look at anything else so and, and and all that came and all that culminated in an election that really changed what the UK is and probably forever will be now. Um, and it's been like that. And you know, I, I can say that for the past twelve years, regardless. Like take your pick, take your pick to pick a year in the past twelve years, and I can give you a moment in British politics that probably probably changed the um, landscape of where we're at for the worse. I can probably do that for you um, in the space of like five minutes of asking. Uh, pick a year, I will find it. <laughs> I will find some bullshit that happened. Um, and 2019, the election was that. And I, like, like you know, like, like the article said, Labour were leading comfortably for a while. For a fucking, for a couple of years. And then that frenzy came through and it was just, and it just, yeah, there was just, so, it was so much noise. It was so much noise. It was deafening. And uh, you know, whatever you, whatever you, however you uh, feel, because obviously anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism, right? Um, whether there's small levels of it or big levels of it doesn't matter here. Um, but you know, I could be that guy and just say that the Tories are phobic in many more things <laughs> and anti a lot of things. So. What's the conversation we're having here, really? Um, but regardless of that, it happened. And, uh, you know, it's good that the report is now here and uh, has contextualised everything. And funny enough, I feel <laughs> it's just been swept, uh, just, uh, you know, shelved and not even talked about because of everything going on right now, the leadership and cost of living and everything else. But, you know context is context and we have context so there's that so let's move straight on to music and uh this is a really good um just uh, just a series i guess just a series of um Articles that are going to come through. Uh, this is going to be via a gal. It's a connection. It's a kind of like journalistic endeavor, I guess, uh, from uh, from Gaudem and uh, Vice. Um, and uh, basically, it's called Open Secrets. Um, there is an introductory article 
um, there as well if you want to peep it, regardless of where you're at, uh, whether it's Vice or a, or a, a, a Galdem. Uh, but I'm uh, picking, I want to give a read of uh, the first one they've uh, published. Uh, and um, basically the whole series of, uh, uh, of, of pieces is basically in efforts to highlight the ills, the social ills that um, the music industry in the UK especially has. Um, and it literally says, um, it says here in the, in the, I don't know what you call it, uh, the subheading, I don't know. Uh, this article is part of Open Secrets, a collaboration between Galdem and Vice that explores abusive behaviour in the music industry and how it has been left unchecked for too long. Uh, read Galdem's Open Secrets cycles here and read uh, Vice's Open Secrets cycles there. So, you know, there's, there's going to be many, um, but this is the first one they've uh, 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 dropped on the same day of the announcement. And uh, this is uh, by an anonymous uh, person. Um, and it's called I was silenced when I spoke out about the abuse I faced in the in underground music circles um, And this one uh, in particular is via Galdem, so shout out to Galdem um, But yeah, and obviously this um, contains um, If you I, I feel like I, I, I haven't I've never done trigger warnings for this show um, uh, I don't let me know if you want me to do so um, But uh, I'll say it for this one since it says on the article uh, this contains mentions of suicide and sexual assault, uh, sexual assault. So just want to throw that out there. But if you want me to do trigger warnings, I can. Um, I might use it for um, comedic purposes as well. Um, so yeah, but I don't know. I, I'm not. Sure. I don't know if I need to do it. Uh, but you know, if you guys want me to, let me know. Anyway, let's get it. Uh, healing after trauma is the goal. To be free of your past, to start anew with a fresh beginning somewhere and just chill. But I can't because of uh, because the cause of my pain is all around me. I try and shake it off and I fail. When you're sexually assaulted, the common silencing tactic is your abuser telling you no one will believe you. We live in a society where the word of a man is believed over that of marginalised uh, genders. And the word of a white person is believed over that from a person of colour. The general consensus is that if you're raped as a black woman or femme and the perpetrator is white, you're a liar and you deserved it. Even though the historical origins can be traced throughout slavery, those with power are the ones who dictate who matters and who doesn't. At this moment, you're reminded your place in society is at the bottom and no one gives a shit. What happens to happened to me isn't unique. It's a result of hundreds of years of violence and continuous mistreatment of bodies that look like mine to preserve the status of those who are the direct opposite. In society's eyes, I can't be a victim. I'm not small, I'm not blonde, I'm not cisgender, I'm not white, I'm not straight, and I'm not middle class. I am so far removed from the binary that most of the people who engage with me on a daily basis don't know how to. Uh, black bodies are seen as a commodity. We're either an enslaved labour source of, or fetishized, fetishized. We're not seen as people. But bodies of material matter to be consumed. Through this process of dehumanization, abuse towards us is normalized. It becomes so entangled with daily life that no one blinks an eye. It's just something that happens by chance rather than a result of structural inequality. So when the conversation surrounding abuse in music resurfaced in summer 2020, at the same time as the Black Lives Matter movement, naturally the intersection came to a head. Both the hashtag MeToo and BLM movements were started by black women. We're seen, uh, we're seen as the saviours, it's our role as women and femmes to be the mammy, to save society on any circumstances, despite being the most affected and despite the abuse and suffering we go through. 
I vaguely remember how I ended up in an ambulance to A&E. I called a friend of mine in a panic after swallowing as many antidepressants as I could and she came from wherever she was and called 999. This was the first of nine attempts that would take place over the next seven months. I remember every single second before trying to overdose and not much after. The endpoint was calling out my abuser, someone also involved in music on social media. Though there had been a period where women were demanding to be heard, to be listened to, and for accountability for the actions of abusers soon after, I had several messages from strangers calling me a liar, telling me I deserved to be raped. Most were saying I should kill myself. Some claimed I invented the whole relationship and I had a personal vendetta. When you're in your early 20s and just starting out in music, it is terrifying enough. I'm generally shy and awkward, but I love to party and that's all I wanted to do. But clubs, despite their pre- uh, perceived counterculture and resistance against white heteronormativity, are currently unsafe for marginalised people. Add this to the massive, uh, two masses of people uh, creating fictional stories, adamant I was lying and using every single stereotype of the angry black woman they could, it was clear the abuser and their friends weren't going to stop till I remained silent. Having people call me a lie, uh, some even writing po- false police statements or shouting at me in public, it's enough to cause anyone a breakdown. But there is something particularly insidious about abuse in underground music circles. Those controlling and owning the spaces, booking artists and controlling the discourse are those with power and privilege. They look and act like they, the, those controlling the overarching structures, but cloaked in trendier clothes and neoliberal, neoliberal buzzwords. Once I spoke out, I was automatically blacklisted. A lot of people I cared about deeply stopped talking to me and I couldn't attend events without people staring, gossiping about me within earshot, so I stopped going out. I had not been DJing for long at this point and I was pushed to quit for my own safety. Even at clubs with safe space policies, I've been harassed. I've played gigs where I've been groped behind the decks, shouted at, my, uh, shouted at by the promoter's friends and have been, and been told to agree to disagree. Sometimes I've simply not been allowed in because I, quote, don't look like a DJ, unquote. Marginalised bodies are the targets and subjects of abuse. Navigating the world simultaneously as both hyper-visible and invisible allows for emotional, physical and sexual abuse to happen seemingly unnoticed. This unnoticing is intentional. I've been in clubs that, uh, and I have met, had men put their hands up my skirt. White women grab my chest and laugh with their friends. Gay cis men grab any part of me they can get hold of and then get angry uh, when I ask to be left alone. There are layers to this violence. There is no one to protect you. Bouncers do nothing but shrug it off and ask if you would like to leave. As if you're the inconvenience. Very few promoters stand by their own policy because it's a vibe ruiner for their friends and the crowd uh, follows the lead of those around them. The police are particularly dismissive. Historically, barely any rape, sexual assault cases are referred to as C- uh, to CPS for review. Uh, but while the numbers for convictions are low, in reality, the abuse is high. As soon as I reported the abuser, I was subjected to police questioning. It was essentially uniformed uh, men and women severely gaslighting me and my experiences. One of the officers called me a liar, a bitch, saying I was, quote, making it all up and trying to ruin ruin a good man, a good white man's life? Do they... Oh, fuck. This is crazy, right? Um, just to, just for someone to say, trying to ruin a good white man's life. That's crazy. 
That's fucking... That's crazy, bro. A white man's life. Why are you saying like that? That's absurd. Like, just good man's life is bad. Oh. Oh, fuck, man. They're crazy. Anyway, let's continue. I had no desire to, desire to even report the assaults to, to police. But with large groups of people adamant that their friend was innocent, despite other women coming forward, I had to. The abuser's behaviour became so part of my routine, I was already numb and distant most of the time. So when the situation, which was public, unfolded, and I was mostly left unsupported by a community who prided itself on protecting each other and championing the marginalised, I retreated more into myself and couldn't find any reason to keep on living. Every day I'm reminded of his actions and those of the people who knew uh, what was happening and chose to remain silent. One of the people who profited off black culture while turning a blind eye to the abuse carried out by their friends, this is how the collective lack of accountability is maintained. It manifests itself in everyone around you and the harm caused becomes the norm. Every violation against you is normalised when no one speaks up. One of the most painful realisations is the feeling of loss, the loss of agency, the loss of nearly eight years of my life, the loss of my inner light that guided me throughout childhood. The end result for me was a diagnosis of complex PTSD, depression, agoraphobia and crippling anxiety. I still struggle daily, but the feeling I can't yet overcome is the sadness and disappointment I feel in every person that could have prevented this and didn't for the sake of their careers over my own humanity. And that's the entire one. That's the entire article right there. Um, now, I officially can't, you know, say it's obviously related to a certain case I'm thinking of. Um, but this does remind me of what's going on right now with Tim Westwood. Um, I think I said this on Moscow that um, when the first um, documentary about him came out a few months ago, um, uh, Kelechi Okafor... Um, and I, I think I, I think I, yeah, I think I read a was uh, an article on the, on this on this uh, on this pod um, relating to Tim Westwood. I think was, I actually called the episode Tim Westwood. So um, go peek that episode if you want. And uh, Kalechi Okafor um, did his Twitter Spaces, and I was coming home from London, and I uh, and I tuned in for like ten minutes of it, and apparently when it was going on for like two hours at that point, and uh, within those 10, 15 minutes, there were like three women just telling really detailed stories. <laughs> excuse me, about their, about their experiences with Tim Westwood, and, um, most of the time, they were, like, you know, 13, 15, it's just, ugh, ugh, it's just ugly, and, um, you know, this gives, and this, this article, um, you know, as it, you know, as it is, is anonymous, and obviously, I don't name names, um, but it's very reminiscent of that, and, um, if, and, and now I, and now I can't, uh, and now I can't really think, uh, about, the music industry without thinking about stuff like this now. Um, and I feel like it's probably worth um, talking about um, overall. And it is true that the music industry is just not, it's just way behind the times in that case. Um, I wonder, um, and I kind of want to ask this question um, to um, a female artist I'm in contact with and if they have any experiences on that front. Um, not to, you know, open wounds or anything, but um, just out of, I guess, I don't know, journalistic curiosity, um, because uh, just, you you never hear, you never hear this shit, you, you just don't, you really don't, it's so cloaked all the time and just never talk, talked about, um, so, you know, but with that said, you know, shout out to Galdem and, uh, and Vice for making it, for creating this space um, for, uh, 
for women and femmes that are, that, are, uh, that haven't been able to voice their voice voice up. And uh, you know, long may this uh, series continue. I hope it gets good traction. Um, and I'm just happy to um, just read a little bit of it and read one person's story, uh, one that I'm sure uh, resonates with many. This is a long episode, looking like. Uh, right, so let's finish off with uh, something a little bit lighter, um, but you know, with implications of um, you know the world dying. Uh, but let's not try and see it like that. Let's try and see. Let's try and see this positively. I hope you do. Um, so this is called uh, "High Gas Prices Are Revving Up This Online Anti-Car Movement." Um, this is by uh, Imad Khan uh, for CNET. And uh, yeah, I am one of those people. I'm not exactly in the community or anything, but I'm very anti-car. I'm very anti-car dependency. Um, and I'm just not into it. Just, just really not into the concept of um, driving everywhere. You know what I mean? Everybody's so dependent on it. And uh, I feel like there's just better ways. Um, but anyway, that's uh, it, we'll, we'll get... If you're very unaware of, uh, of you know what anti-car is, is and anti-car dependency is, I mean, shit, I mean, it says on the tin, but you know, we'll get into this instead. Uh, Jason Slaughter began uh, making YouTube videos to document his family's move from Toronto to Amsterdam a few years ago. That's how the 45-year-old IT professional became an inadvertent uh, hero of the growing anti-car movement online. Posting to his orange-themed channel, Slaughter focused on the differences between transportation in North America and the Netherlands, which he chose for its car-free lifestyle. One video details a short but treacherous walk in Houston that required pedestrians to inch over a bridge with little separating them and speeding traffic. The 17-minute video, uh, which was uploaded about a year ago, struck a nerve with R fuck cars. Uh, Reddit, by the way. Um, Reddit, Reddit, slash fuck cars. Um, a vehemently anti-automobile uh, Reddit community advocating for urban design that's less reliant on driving. Members quickly appropriated Saul's aesthetic, rewarding new converts with an orange-pilled badge after they've experienced an automobile or anti-automobile epiphany. Uh, orange pilling is a reference to the Matrix movies in which the hero sees the truth about the world after taking the red pill. Um, yeah, so ho- hopefully you've seen the films. If you haven't, like, what the fuck are you doing? Get off this podcast and please go watch the Matrix. Uh, quote, It's kind of been a wild ride ever since, said Slaughter, whose video is now has now 4.3 million views. The subreddit, he says, has treated him to as a goddamn messiah. The popularity of Slaughter's videos on our fuck cars uh, comes as more Americans and Canadians question the way the continent is organised. A surge in the price of gasoline as well as automobiles has prompted many people to re-examine car-dependent suburban and exurban lifestyles. A young generation more interested in clean energy is also rejecting car ownership, favouring densely populated cities with ample public transportation. The anxiety over cars is spinning out online. In addition to our fuck cars, whose membership has more than quadrupled to 283,000 members since gas prices started to spike at the beginning of the year, the War on Cars podcast, bike forums, and the hashtag CarsSuck hashtag um, on uh, Twitter have all given voice to the frustrations over automobiles. They have helped create a vocabulary for the confinement and separation associated with North America's car-dependent culture. Online discussions also tie car dependency to economic inequality, an increasingly important topic for younger people. 
One study conducted by the Centre for Sustainable Urban Neighbourhoods at the University of Louisville uh, found modest increases of uh, to public transportation gave more opportunities for economic mobility. Adrian uh, Piet- Pietrzak, a PhD student at Princeton, who calls himself uh, at Zoning Wonk on Twitter, uh, posts frequently about cars uh, being a tax on the poor. And there's a uh, plenty of uh, there's a couple of embedded tweets on here if you want to peep. Uh, quite a huge concern, and that actually also ties into online communities is the nature of community itself said uh, Jeffrey Debbie Debbie's Carl, um, an associate professor of sociology at the University of New Haven, who has watched the phenomenon grow. Communities like R-Fuck Cars, more on the loss of America, uh, uh, many of the members are too young to experience. A common theme is that cities weren't made for cars. Instead, they were bulldozed to accommodate automobiles. Oftentimes, archival photos are used to make the point that even the most sprawling cities, such as Los Angeles and Denver, were once compact, walk- walkable urban centers. As, as car usage uh, grew, streets became congested and urban design adapted to new demands. Uh, quote, Never forget what was taken from us, reads one post featuring a photo of uh, mid-century Dallas that could be mistaken for Manhattan. Uh, Ford, GM, Stellantis, uh, Nissan, Toyota, BMW, Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen didn't respond to requests to comment uh, about the online anti-car movement. Honda said it was monitoring anti-car forums as well as the broader global conversation. Jay Joseph, who runs Japanese company's new energy business in the US, said investment in robust po- uh, public transportation would make it easier for cities to raise barriers to cars. Uh, quote, you can't just make the decision and stop using personal mobility, as Joseph said, and then hope that everything works its way out, unquote. Advocates for re- reimagining urban life say uh, social media has been key to getting the message out. Twitter, Instagram, and other platforms allow people to globetrot from their couches to cities in Europe, they are organized around bikes or megalopolises? Megalopolises. Megalopolises. Fucking hell, that's a, t- uh, uh, that's a horrible word to say. In Asia, where public transportation moves people from place to place. Quote, when I started my career in the 90s, if you wanted to have your, th- have your thinking transformed by another city... You have to take a trip to Copenhagen, uh, said Brent Todarian, a urban planning consultant who previously worked for the cities of Vancouver and Calgary. Social media, he said, gave us all the ability to perceive to be uh, to be perceive and be inspired by those cities. Uh, Jacob Unterrena, ter- these names, bro, Unterrenier, no, Unterrena, Unterrena, there you go, 27, a student at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, said online communities encouraged him to co-found Charlotte Urbanists, an activist group that aims to, quote, combat destructive suburban norms, unquote. To encourage more public transportation, the group raised money online to build and install bus stop benches, generating attention. That his, that, that Jacob, I'm not saying his second name, um, hopes will lead to higher quality bus stops in the future. Jacob recently ended up on Reddit's front page for a meme about growing size of Mini Coopers over the last four and a half decades. And that is actually crazy how, like, big minis have actually gotten, like, didn't even clock how large they are. That's actually stupid. Uh, the post generated around 5 million views, he said, uh, after it landed on uh, one of the internet's most valuable pieces of real estate, quote, the views just skyrocket on your posts, uh, Jacob said. BMW, which owns the mini brand, didn't respond to a request for comment regarding Jacob's voted post. <laughs> what is these names? Aaron with three A's. Are you taking a piss? Napastic. 
Why is there three A's on your name, bro? That must be a typo, I'm, I'm convinced. I've never seen three A's on Aaron. That's absurd. Two A's is absurd to me, but whatever. The co-host of the War on Cars podcast said the anti-car movement will likely have difficulty getting SUVs and hulking trucks banned from neighbourhoods, but can still make inroads by advocating for bike lanes and pedestrian-friendly streets. Quote, as cars have grown in size and power and distracting features over the last five to ten years, uh, there's been this kind of equivalent growth in awareness that we need to push back against the industry and the culture, said Nepostek, whose four-year-old podcast attracts 20,000 listeners per episode. Oh, how's, how nice is, how's nice is that? That's great. Good for you, bro. Good for you. Uh, Slaughter, the Canadian video maker, is, some, is a somewhat iconic, he- uh, ironic hero sorry, uh, in the on- online anti-car movement in North America. Though he continues to post on his channel, titled Not Just Bikes, He's given up on change in Canada and said activism back home will accomplish little. Quote, these, are willing f- these people are willing- willfully ignorant, Snort said of the uh, suburban lights back home. They just come up with a bunch of excuses to st- keep the status quo. And, um, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm kind of uh, on the outside looking in for this as, uh, in some way because, uh, you know, I want to be in London, right? And I... Feel I feel like London's just a really good place for me personally because I don't drive and I feel like you can get around London without driving. Um, I feel like you know public transport there is fine. It's not perfect. It has its issues, obviously, but um, you know overall it's fine. It works. It can it can get the job done when it's operating in its full capacity. Right? You can get anywhere around. You can get around anywhere in London just using the tube. For me personally, that's how I do things. And, uh, you know, if, if that doesn't work, you know, you can use the bus in a pinch or you can use a taxi in a pinch, right? Um, so, you know, there's options as well. And obviously, you know, they have uh, e-bike stations and e-scooter stations and stuff like that. So you have options, right, to not use a car. And um, I feel like that's, you know, what it should be. Um, I, I really do feel that way. I feel, you know, car dependency, you know, past London makes sense right i can i understand why my mother for example uses a car to get to work right um you know she's in her 60s i don't expect her to be you know getting a bus to work um she has bad feet i don't expect i just don't expect her to do so car she is car dependent and that is what it is right i can't change that um unless you know to maybe get her an ev but i don't have that kind of scratch on me right now unfortunately so you know I don't know what I could do past that. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's possible to do that everywhere. Or you can, but it just um, takes a lot of effort. And I don't think uh, councils, especially local councils, won't have that uh, vision to do so. Um, but, you know, for cities especially, um, car dependency shouldn't be a thing. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel that strongly. Maybe to get to the city, sure, but once you're there, once you're on the outskirts, you can get inside, um, you know, using public transport. I feel, personally, you could do that. Um, but, you know, it is what it is um, at that point. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's, there's there was a mini, um, there was a mini argument on social media a few months ago, during the winter especially. Um, Extinction Rebellion brought this up, um, you know, with people using SUVs a lot. And I think that's a big problem here as well. I do see a lot of SUVs and just not a lot of people in it. I'm just like, why, bro? Why are you using that right now? Um, I, that's definitely a problem. Um, but, yeah, you know, 
past that, there's not really much conversation going around. Um, but for me personally, I do what I can do. And uh, for me, it is just not using cars. Um, you know, it's, it's it's just how I feel I can... It's how, it's how I want to do things. I like public, public transport. I appreciate public transport. And I get why people, you know, don't want to use public transport because other people can be annoying, right? Is <laughs> I get it, I get it. Um, but, you know, past that, I, I don't see why people shouldn't be more embracing of it. And let's be real, doesn't have you don't have to. You can get your own, you know, bike or, you know, something like that. Keep you fit, whatever. Doesn't have to be public transport. It could be personal transport, but just not a car. Um, but again, for people like my mother, I get it. I get why she's car dependent. Um, so you know, while I'm logical towards it, um, I also believe that we can improve on it. Um, and you could say that about many things in the world. And with that said, I shall leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. If we're on the fifth Film podcast network, I've been Charlie Taylor. This been most good. Good. Uh, <laughs> intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for the ability to use track. You can find both their links in the show notes. Thanks to Nappy High for the ability to use track in uh, track charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. Until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.